green. Viju Shah looked at the familiar Mombasa coastline as the aircraft circled the Kenyan airspace, waiting to land. The white sands and the green sea below walked hand in hand along the vast stretch of the beach. He slowly shifted his gaze to the pristine January sky. Peering out of the aircraft window, he felt the sky appeared closer than the cobbled streets below. Streets where his childhood still echoed in passionate games of soccer and cricket played decades ago. Three generations earlier, the ambitious railway line project of the British colonizers had brought his ancestors from Kutch to Mombasa. They had arrived distraught, unanchored and empty-handed, with only hope for a better life keeping them alive through the arduous voyage. His forefathers had toiled hard to make a living, to create a future for their children. Returning to Mombasa today, he felt the same, distraught and empty-handed. Except in his case, there was going to be no generation to follow. His toils of a lifetime had been rendered futile by a swift blow of fate. The only offshoot of his family tree had been severed, leaving behind a meaningless stump. He turned to look at his wife, Sheila, a slightly built woman sitting beside him. Through the years, he had learned to admire and acknowledge her inner strength. A calming influence on his temperamental nature, she had weathered life's tribulations with grace. Sheila's deep sense of faith was her anchor, and she reinforced it with a routine of praying and reading spiritual literature. Today, as she slept next to him on the aircraft, she looked frail and aged beyond her ears. For once, the silver in her hair was not adding to her graceful face. She suddenly looked like a shadow of the woman Viju had loved for 25 years. Her face reflected what was not a peaceful slumber, but a drug-induced sleep. The effect of the sedatives administered by the doctor in Mumbai would wear off soon. Viju noticed newly formed frown lines on her forehead. He recalled the Niali Bridge that connected Mombasa to the mainland. But he knew Sheila's creak of sorrow would remain unbridged. A rear deeper and wider than the Tudor Creek of Mombasa. He shifted in his seat, the discomfort of his thoughts tiring him more than the five-hour flight from Mumbai. Viju's thoughts took him down memory lane. He remembered his aimless ramblings along the great harbour. He remembered how, oblivious to the sounds of the ships and merchandise on the move, he had spent a happy childhood in the bylanes of Mombasa. It was a coastal town that always remained at peace within the labyrinth of narrow streets punctuated by mosques, churches and the occasional temple. 
streets that opened up to the magnificent harbor and white sand beaches. His hand moved instinctively to stroke his furrowed brow, as he recalled a geography lesson from school about the origins of the harbor that had saved Mombasa from the wrath of the recent tsunami. The angry sea had risen over a million years ago and swallowed a river near the coast to give Mombasa a deep and excellent harbor. Viju's mind drifted back to Rohan, his only son and a bright young man. An aptitude for mathematics had been a trait in every Shah through the generations. Rohan excelled at mathematics, and given his exceptional abilities in science, engineering had been an obvious choice. Going to India to pursue it had been the next logical step. A week ago, Rohan had been a final year engineering student in Pune. He was now a fistful of ash in Viju's suitcase. The sea of destiny had engulfed 21 years of Viju and Sheila's lives. Rohan was the only river that had nourished and bridged the banks of their souls. A bomb blast in a crowded market in Pune had left seven dead and several stunned. Viju had bought the newspaper carrying a photograph of the charred shops and the identified victims in the inset. Suicide bomber, no older than 17, leaves the city in fear and shock, the headline read. A strange souvenir, Viju thought. How will this ever heal? The newspaper resting in his listless hands began to weigh too much. The aircraft took a final decisive swerve towards the waiting runway at the Mombasa airport. The Mazen's call for afternoon prayers could be heard from a distant mosque as Viju waited for the suitcases to arrive. A split second is what destiny needs to play out its plan and undo yours. These fundamentalist hardliners deserve to be hanged in public. No wonder our Hindu communities are clinging to the saffron flag to counter their terrorizing shadow of green waving fanatics. He muttered and cursed under his breath. A creeping whine of bitterness grew every time he tried to swing open the door to his own heart. He felt the green vines of loathing growing denser every time he saw a Muslim around him. A backlit board with arrows in opposite directions announcing arrivals and departures caught Viju's attention as he guided Sheila through immigration. She was still a bit disoriented. He found himself pondering again. None is without a purpose here at this terminal and yet every journey seems so pointless. One may circumvent the globe a million times and yet the unrest in the heart remains as if stationary. The late afternoon breeze cut through the cement mesh filling the arches that ran along the airport's high halls. The breeze was bruised and howling as if echoing the Shah's 
silent mourning. Sheila was still in a state of denial and her puffy eyes searched for Rohan at every familiar curve and bend of the winding tarmac that took them home. She had been crying inconsolably in India and Viju felt it would be impossible to reclaim her from this bereavement. The taxi halted and the smell of freshly baked bread told them they had arrived. A rusting signboard read, Kantibhai Shah and Sons, quality bakers since 1967. Hala rolled up the prayer rug and rushed to receive them at the door. He was as eager and alert at 55 as he had been at 25 when he had started shoveling coal to keep the ovens going at the bakery. He reached out to get the bags from the taxi. His eyes not meeting Viju's, he offered a polite pole, a sympathetic sorry for the loss and Viju responded with an indifferent sava, okay. Thereafter a silence hung in the air, like a hot air balloon waiting to be pricked. Hala's powerful arms carried the travel-weary suitcases that had seen many trips to India, but none as consuming and tiring as this one. Set in his dark face, Hala's intense eyes appeared threatening to Sheila. And for the first time in three decades, Viju felt a growing dislike for Hala's attire, especially the kofia, prayer cap, covering his balding head. He tried to shun the thought, but the clasp of the wines growing in his heart was inescapable. Tightening with each passing moment, he wondered if the blood red in Hala's eyes had always been there. Maji? Chai? Hala asked if they wanted water or tea. He was struggling to cover the awkwardness he felt. It was a difficult moment. He was not much of a social being. For Hala, grief was a personal experience that required no intervention. But he had seen people wail in public and seek shoulders to cry upon. Having been a loner for most of his life, he did not know how to react and was clueless as to what to say to the unfortunate parents who had lost their only son. Sheila headed straight to her prayer room and Viju's eyes followed her. She had begun to make her truce with tragedy and it seemed as if her home was consoling her. Every wall reached out to support her. Each window leaned in to heal her wounded soul. All pieces of furniture huddled close to her with the intention of filling the void created by Rohan's absence. It left Viju surprised and ill at ease as he saw a familiar calm return to Sheila's eyes. On her way in, Sheila shook her head in denial. Kenyan tea won't rejuvenate her and a disheartened Viju too headed for the washroom. 
Hala quickly excused himself to return to the front of the bakery. Among the stacks of bread loaves, rows of cookie jars and cinnamon rolls, he felt at ease and found his solace. He let out a sigh of anguish and relief. He had been dreading facing the Shahs. While the Shahs had been away to claim the remains of their dead son and deal with the tragedy in India, Hala had looked after the bakery and the house. Alone at night, he would be weighed down by grief, and often tears would well up in his eyes. He remembered Rohan's childhood. Rohan and his son Juma had grown up together as playmates and friends, equals outside the house when in the playground or at school. Memories from the wonderful years when the boys were growing into fine young men kept flashing in front of his eyes. Rohan went to India to pursue engineering and Juma went to Dar Islam in search of his poems and prose. Hala had seen his share of violent clashes and conflict over the years in a strife-torn Kenya. Yet he trembled at the mere thought of losing Juma like Rohan had been lost to a meaningless act of violence. He had grown tired of narrating the tragic news to inquisitive and concerned customers who frequented the bakery. The regulars would console him as if the loss was his and would offer their condolences while he rolled up their bread loaves in paper. Hala was an integral part of the Shah Bakery. He worked hard to provide for the education of his only son and to fulfill his wife Aisha's dying wish. A better life for Juma. Juma would write to Hala every week about his progress at the university. He would send Hala his latest poems too. This week Juma had written a farewell to his childhood friend, Rohan. Hala knew he would never muster the courage to share it with Viju or Sheila. He read it quietly. Running his fingers across every word, tracing the path of pain and then deposited the envelope in the old chest that held his memorabilia. The chest sat in a quiet corner of his sparse quarters and he would sit next to it, sometimes to feel a proximity to a lost past, huddling next to the warmth of memories on cold winter nights. Hala pulled down the shutters and double-checked the locks on the grills. After the evening prayers, he went into the kitchen to assist as usual, hoping life would have returned to normalcy and the void would be filled by old routines. He glanced at Sheila in the garden and felt reassured. Work, according to him, healed miraculously. The January evening stretched a shawl of flames across Sheila's garden as she tended to the rows of vegetables in the kitchen garden. Her green corner of solace had been neglected for over two weeks. Even the cheerful sesame wore a remorseful look. Sheila's face was expressionless and her hands worked dexterously, but the usual tenderness in her touch was gone. 
She surprised herself with the curt indifference of her own hands. She plucked the mint stems, and Viju, who watched from the porch, wondered if Sheila's natural instinct to nurture had perished on the journey back from India. Sheila could overhear Mustafa Ismailji's familiar deep voice from the veranda. But today it wasn't punctuated by roaring laughter that usually followed an anecdote or a winning argument that would seal another animated debate between Viju and him. The two would often discuss politics, religion and mysticism over cups of tea and the crackle of Kakra. Mustafa Ismailji was an enigma. A retired English teacher whose heart was always on the soccer field. He had been a probable for the Kenyan national side as a defender. But nagging injuries and an anti-Muslim wave had swept away all his chances. He had found solace in teaching poetry, coaching and Islamic studies. The freshly brewed tea in the pot had started to change colour and bitterness conquered the brew. Neither Viju nor Mustafa sipped any tea today. Hala squatted on the floor and a thirsty January dusk licked the last drops of honey from the skies. Today's crossword lay ignored too, within the folds of the impatient newspaper fluttering beneath Viju's bifocal spectacles. Both men were at a loss for the right words today. Hala wanted to leave under some pretext. The silence was biting him, like the mosquitoes in his quarters. He tried to get up, but Viju signalled him not to. Hala noticed an alien expression of frustration on Viju's face, but he ignored it and complied. Mustafa reached out to touch Viju's shoulder. It's God's will, Viju said. We have to accept it with grace and patience. I know it's easier said than done. But my friend, we have pondered over life and death issues in Rumi's poems and the Gita. Rohan was my brightest student. I clearly remember the day he came to practice soccer for the first time. Oh, he was a wonderful kid. May Allah rest his soul in peace. Viju snapped back. And what words of comfort do you have for the parents of the Fidayin militant who blew himself up to kill seven innocent young boys? Of course, life isn't fair, but this needs more explaining, Mustafa Bhai. The expression, why me, sounds so cliched. Only until it is not really me. I no longer wonder why academicians are never at ease answering the real questions. So, Mustafa, my dear friend, I understand your silence, but not the rest of it. Viju was letting out two weeks of pent-up emotions, and Mustafa did not interrupt. Hala kept his chin on his knees and listened intently. Viju felt the silence granted him a license to go on. What good is your daughter, Nafisa, doing for humanity in extremist-infested West Pakistan? 
She is living amongst these men with twisted minds, with annihilation as their prime objective. Do you think they can be brought back into the mainstream? Making documentaries based on their plight and misfortune and trying to understand them is not the answer. These juvenile criminals should be wiped out in a single stroke. They can't be herded back to join the human race. Look what they've done to my son. He's a photograph on the wall now and a, a pot of ash to be scattered in ginger. Viju broke down. Mustafa kept telling the beads on his rosary. After Viju regained his composure, Mustafa spoke in a familiar, calming baritone. Nafisa came back yesterday. I will tell her to come and answer your questions when you feel better. She's fixing dinner for all of us right now. We hope to see you in Bhabijan at uh, nine o'clock, Viju said. Hala, you must come too. And he walked out. Hala saw the big man leave, his white kanzo like a full moon in the dark night, making his way home through the thicket of shadows, which was growing denser every minute. Sheila spoke stoically from the bedroom. I want to go to Mustafa Bhai's place. Haven't seen Nafisa for so long. And I need to get away from this house for a while. Freshen up and let's go. Viju was startled, but he obeyed. For her sake. Perhaps his own too. But Hala politely declined. Abasi, the Askari. Security guard is not well. So I have to keep watch tonight. The house can't be left alone, sir. Viju's eyes met Hala's for the first time since his return from India. And Hala read suspicion in Viju's gentle brown eyes. Viju hesitated for a moment, then nodded and said, But you sleep in the outhouse. We will lock the main house and leave the bakery keys on the mantel in the living room. Hala hid his surprise and disappointment but swiftly moved to obey. Viju's eyes followed him as he walked past, adjusting the kofia on his head. Sheila, make sure you put away the valuables in the safe in Rohan's room. The Askari is on leave and Hala will be keeping watch. We are always a little complacent when we return from India. Remember what happened to the Patels last May? And I don't trust these... Viju swallowed the rest of the sentence as Hala came in with a pitcher of water and glasses set in a tray for the night. Sheila understood and after some deliberation went into Rohan's room to put away the things. Viju waited for her in the front porch, watching the sky fill with stars. A star for every departed soul, he thought. Suddenly the constellations felt like rosary beads and he wanted to pray and reach out to touch the star that would be Rohan, but how could he tell? Why am I going to have dinner prepared by a girl who works with the people who took my Rohan away? 
I should have declined Mustafa's offer. He's one of them too. Always trying to teach me Rumi's mysticism and poems and frequently quoting the Quran. It was so intentional, this attempt to distract me from my path of karma. I wouldn't have lost Rohan had I heeded Lord Krishna's Gita and not polluted my mind with these diversions. I've invited his wrath upon me. Forgive me, my son. Buju was reveling in the arguments presented by his newfound fundamentalist voice. He found himself chased by a saffron shadow that lured him deeper into unexplored nooks of his own mind. Let us go, Viju. It is already nine o'clock. We are late. Sheila's thin voice dragged him back from his reverie. They walked down the street to the old teacher's house in the comfort of mutual silence. And Viju promised himself, This is the last time, Rohan, I promise. I will not go again. But tonight I must ask his daughter. I must understand why. Questions are like inverted hooks and caught like fish. We hopelessly try to break free from some questions all our lives. Nafisa held Sheila in an embrace and they wept over the loss as if it was mutual. Moved to tears, Viju held his anger and questions. Mustafa's gaze rested on Viju and Viju looked away still uncertain of his own presence in their house. Viju felt guilty of betrayal, and he felt that somewhere Rohan too was not happy. A shy, a shy, teenaged boy was hiding behind the curtains, and he kept throwing curious glances at the shahs while they ate. Sheila looked at Nafisa inquiringly. He's Aslam Khan, he decided to come with me from Pakistan. It's a part of an effort by the NGO I work for to resettle willing orphans and surrendering troopers wherever possible. He's one of the several boys we have counseled and rescued from Taliban camps. Aslam wants to be a doctor so that he can save lives. He decided this when his brother died in a suicidal mission in Lahore. He's a bright young man and is a very quick learner. One of the best students from our school back there. Come out and greet them. Aslam, they are family. Aslam Khan came into full view. He was tall, but his clear eyes were too sad for a boy his age. All hope for a normal life is the first deserter in a war-ravaged mind. The earlier it happens, worse it is. An invisible weight hung on his wide shoulders. Only his heart knew what it was. A scar ran beneath his left eyebrow. It was a souvenir from a flying splinter. And not the only scar he carried from the bombing site in Lahore, where his brother had blown himself up. He had witnessed death of his sibling from a few feet away. A backup detonator in one hand and a Kalashnikov in the other, a creak ran through his heart too. He looked tired and beaten. Remorse, he had discovered, is a dark funnel.
that gets narrower and tighter at the other end, allowing only one person to pass through. Nafisa had been his farishta. This angel had somehow managed to get him this far, but he knew the journey beyond would have to be on his own. It would be a lonely road to salvation. Guilt walks without a shadow. But the image of his brother with his intestines splayed all around and the detonator in his hand refused to let go of him. They had tricked him. They had not told him that his own brother had offered to make the supreme sacrifice in the name of jihad. Aslam and Viju's eyes met and they shared a strange connection. A man who had gotten off a ride of hate from hell and the other ready to board the same. They were like two passengers who exchanged glances in the long walkways of an airport, one ready to board a flight and the other who has just arrived. There is a common denominator, displacement, which connects the two like dots that meet on a graph. Aslam's first instinct was to take a step back, his anti-India training, the fear psychosis that had been drilled into his very core at the camps coming to the fore like an automated response mechanism. But Nafisa's calming influence and presence instantly took over. He relaxed and acknowledged the guests with a smile. Viju looked at Aslam and felt the now familiar vines of rage further tightening around his heart, closing like a dense green fist wrapping and clogging his arteries. A deluge of conflicting thoughts and feelings overwhelmed his mind. He wanted to excuse himself and go out for a breath of fresh air. Sheila ate her meal quietly. Nafisa glanced at her father cluelessly and Mustafa signaled, as if telling her to reserve her impulsive instinct for inquiry for later. Sensing Viju's turmoil, Mustafa took him for a walk and filled him in on Aslam's background. Viju jumped in utter surprise and condemned Mustafa for sheltering a dangerous terrorist. Mustafa put an understanding hand on Viju's shoulder and said, Algae and dense undergrowth are punctuated by the odd lotus. God often leaves it for us to choose what we want our swamps of suffering to hold and nurture. Viju felt too tired to argue. He longed to get home, back to the comfort of his room, to mourning and solitude. The farewells were brief and awkward. Viju never came around to asking his questions. He noticed how Nafisa made Aslam feel at ease and at home. Perhaps he had found his answers. He just did not want to accept them yet. Death always severs more than one imagines. Tangled in the winds of grief and anger, two shadows ambled back to the gloomy corridors and rooms of the Shah residence. Back at the house, 
Hala felt sadness in the heart of the sky. He opened the old chest and took out Juma's poems. Juma did the Swahili translations for Hala's benefit, but always sent the English version too. These poems often healed Hala's wounds of solitude. He lowered the torch and the light formed a halo around the page. It had grown pale with stains of time and repeated readings. But this one was Hala's all-time favorite. He read it again, slowly, letting the words console his aching heart. Half a moment. When I walked with you, the song of the full moon was held captive in your eyes. We put petals of silence on the mist and watched our breaths dance to its quiet music. The night rushed to dust and fold her starlit sky. A half-awake dawn shoveled away the dark. We filled the twilight with half a song from your harp and half a poem from my flute. And forever poured itself into love's half a moment. Hala recalled the fateful half a moment that had taken his wife Aisha away. She had started late from work that evening and had not had time to change out of her work clothes into her buibui. The police had stopped her, taking her to be one of the prostitutes who had recently come to Mombasa. This new breed of sex workers was attracted to the influx of affluent tourists who frequented the beaches after dinner. She had pleaded innocence and had tried to explain her attire. She had told them that she worked in a tuck shop at the beach. But the officers had been too drunk and too corrupt to relent. She had panicked and run. She had been shot in the back just once. In that half a moment of ill luck, Hala's world had collapsed. Hala turned the tap to wash his face. The night was long and the vigil important. Stealthily, three shadows converged upon him. The night camouflages a lot in East Africa. Hala was caught off guard by the gang of armed and desperate thieves. The nocturnal sounds and the ceaseless song of the ocean drowned all noises of the struggle that ensued. The break-in thereafter and the scouring of the entire house. The darkness mysteriously cleared all tracks as the thieves retreated into nowhere. In Kenya, crime has a way of coexisting with corruption and reconciling with it. In God's own Africa is a way of life. The police was taking statements next morning and Viju was struggling to keep his nerve. Burglars had ransacked the house, the safe had been looted, all the cash from it was gone along with Sheila's jewellery. The police had a hunch that the thieves had been tipped by Abasi. The Askari security guard had betrayed the Shahs. A trail of blood ran all over the house, telling a gory tale of struggle till the end. The faithful servant had resisted with all his might. Hala lay lifeless 
next to the old chest in his room. A brass container of ash held close in his massive arms. Vijay requested for the possession of his son's remains from the police. And later that week he flew to Jinja in Uganda to release them into the Nile near the statue of Gandhi. A place Rohan had liked visiting frequently. Like fall, loss too is a season in life. Viju lost a lot that year and the unfair barter with life yielded only solitude. Mustafa Smileji too passed away suddenly due to a massive heart attack. Viju Shah helped Nafisa take care of her father's affairs. He was clueless when it came to deciding Aslam's future. After much deliberation, Aslam moved in with the only family Mustafa Ismailji had in Mombasa, the Shahs. Sheila and Nafisa arrived at the decision after much introspection and Aslam arrived at the Shah's house taking hesitant steps. Viju resisted the green vines of hate tightening in defense around his heart like a fortress. But Hala's death had dented the armor of fundamentalism that he wore. Mustafa's counseling and compassion in the subsequent months had convinced him not to hate all Muslims. But he still held every terrorist responsible for his Rohan's death. Nafisa stayed with the Shahs for a month. She knew it would never be easy for Aslam and Viju. Aslam began working at the bakery. He quickly learned to bake and sell. He was keen, young and hardworking. Sheila wanted him to go back to his studies and he enrolled for classes that would help him prepare for medical school. Sheila slowly began to accept Aslam's presence in the house as a second chance at raising Rohan, her maternal instinct taking charge. Nafisa returned to Pakistan, partly relieved of her worries regarding Aslam, to look for more Aslams, living somewhere in the shadow of terror. Aslams who were in dire need of a Nafisa, yet they did not know. But she did. So go, she must. But somewhere in her heart, Nafisa knew that Viju Shah had not forgiven the Aslams of the world. She realized that her mission was just beginning. The thickets of hate that grew around the world still blocking her way. The young, strapping Pashtun was winning hearts around the neighborhood with his sincerity, integrity and a charming smile that added to his handsome face. Still, Viju and Aslam exchanged very little. The discomfort of bearing each other's presence weighed heavy on both of them. Sheila served their meals at different times and they avoided interacting with one another until absolutely necessary. As months passed, Viju began to appreciate Aslam's honesty. Aslam was quick to learn 
and he was precise with his calculation of sales figures. He worked diligently and studied late into the night. Peering through partially drawn curtains, which you would notice Aslam's room in the outhouse aglow with the light of the study lamp. He would stand by the window and look at the light for a few minutes every night as Sheila slept soundly. Viju found solace in the light that flowed and spread in the lush lawn like a river. He felt a strange desire to step onto the grass and cross this river of light. He yearned to cleanse himself. A belief grew stronger that the therapeutic power of this river could heal his soul and an inexplicable force drew him towards it. From the dark banks of one such night, he stepped onto the grass and made his way to the outhouse. Viju tapped at the door gently and Aslam was surprised to receive a visitor at that hour. Impulsively, Viju asked Aslam what he was studying. I'm studying for the entrance test of a medical college. The examination is in three months and I want to qualify for it. Viju was surprised. You want to be a doctor, hmm? Where is this medical college? In Pakistan? Oh no, sir. The college is in India, in Mumbai. Aslam replied hesitantly. He felt he was chasing a wild dream and if he revealed it, the world would laugh at him. Viju's jaw dropped. He didn't know how to react. An ex-terrorist wants to be a doctor and wants to study medicine in India, the country he wanted to annihilate? The thought ran through his mind, but he contained a surprise and said, Would you like some tea? I'm going to brew some. I can't sleep tonight. He hesitated and then said, If it's all right, I'll sit here, sip my tea, and you just carry on studying. Aslam smiled and nodded in the affirmative. And so it began, an unexplained and tentative relationship. Over shared cups of tea at midnight, time is strange. It can plunge a dagger of misfortune, leave a wide gash on the soul's tender skin in a split second, and then spend months on end to heal the same wound. The summer began to scatter its gifts around the southern hemisphere, and the smile returned to Sheila's kitchen garden. She was startled when Viju started admiring Aslam's commitment to the job and his preparation for medical education. A year later, Nafisa returned to meet the Shahs and to be amongst family for Eid. Juma too came visiting from Dar Islam. He wanted to take away the old chest filled with his father's memories and pay his respects to the Shahs. His previous visit after his father's sudden death had not been an easy one. Somewhere in his heart he carried seeds of hatred for the Shah Bakery and Mombasa that had taken away both his parents. Nafisa walked with Juma through the neighborhood. The two were on a quiet pilgrimage of sorrow, reliving 
bittersweet memories of lost parents. At the Shah's front door, they saw Aslam painting the old signboard at the entrance. Kanti Bhai Shah and Sons, quality bakers since 1967. What a fresh look. The new font found approval in Viju's smile. Nafisa rushed to hug Viju. She smiled at Aslam and he looked at his guardian angel with adoration. He knew, although she had not replied, that Nafisa had read the email he had sent her the previous week. Against the evening sun, Sheila watched rainbows dancing on the water jet from the sprinkler. Juma opened Hala's chest and read his last dedication to his friend, Rohan. Footprints Leaving through the album of Lost Seasons, I pause at the bookmarked spring that took you away with a sigh. I still turn over leaves each fall, looking for your footprints. As he read on, Viju, Nafisa, Aslam and Sheila reflected on their losses and reconciliations at this reunion of broken families. Sheila's gentle voice intruded Juma's poetry session and Viju's thoughts. Go and pack, Aslam. You have an early morning flight. Let me know if you need anything else. Aslam went in the house to pack his bags. A certain trepidation reflected in his gait, but he was happy that he would be starting medical college in Mumbai next week, a city he had once wanted to target with his wrath. Biju's eyes followed Aslam into Rohan's room. A familiar pride filled a void inside him in that deja vu moment. Hope tugged at the anchor and the vice-like grip of the green vines began to let go of his captured heart. Somewhere in the distance, at the Mombasa harbour, a ship announced its departure.